We're going to do, we're going to talk about pastoral epistles today, so we'll start in 1 Timothy, so turn to 1 Timothy, we're moving right along, still behind, we're going to stay behind, but we're going to be okay, it's going to be okay. So 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Ta- yeah, John, oh yeah, where are they, they're on the printer, I printed them. And I grabbed mine and filled it out. Yeah. So, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. You guys have heard that term before. Who could tell me? I, I assume you have. I think you have to some degree, maybe. Who could tell me why First and Second Timothy and Titus are called pastoral epistles? Huh? Because they're pastoral. In what way? Because of pastoral. Okay. What else? <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, basically. Expound on that a little bit for me, son. Brandon said because Paul is pastoring young pastors. Give me, just like keep talking around that because you guys can. Ministry, your character, church structure. Yeah, yeah. It talks a lot about, like, really jumping up what Brandon said. Like, it's Paul telling younger ministers. Here's some things you need to do and instill in your church as you're building up leaders, as you're teaching people to follow the gospel. So that's why these epistles are called what they are. Um, might be helpful for you to know if you were taking like a Bible knowledge survey, if you ever did a residency program or something, that if you ever wanted to know the requirements that the Bible gives for elders and deacons, they're found in 1 Timothy 3 and one other place. Anybody know the chapter? Titus 1. Yeah, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 are the places. The lists are really, really similar. But those are the places where it's like, an elder needs to be like this. So we'll look at those lists today. Um, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There's a bunch of other stuff kind of around there, but um, those are the two main passages. Helpful to know. It's always helpful to be able to find those. At least if you know they're in 1 Timothy and Titus, you can go there and find it. You'll be glad to know that someday. You may be in a church someday where you're like, wait, this doesn't seem right. Let me read that list and see how we're doing. You know, or you may be in a church someday where you read that list and it's like, man, I'm so grateful um, that these things really are held in high regard here. You may be at a church someday where you're trying to decide if you want to work there and you want to ask them, hey, what do you think about First Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Um, it's just great to know where those lists are and great for us because you know the, the roles that we're called to do as like vocational ministry workers is different than being an elder. But, man, I would sure think that if God was saying, you are a youth minister, you're a worship minister, you're a children's minister, you're a preaching minister, whatever, you're a fill-in-the-blank minister of some kind that you guys are going to be, I would sure think that God would say, yeah, those things that I had Paul write about, like the high level of character requirement and integrity for the elders of a church, man, you should meet those. You know, like just because we're not technically elders, I think doesn't mean that we're exempt from that list. That list is for us, too. So... Um, check those out. Let them step all over your toes sometimes. And I, a lot of times when I read those those kinds of lists, I'll I'll feel pretty good about some of them, you know. And I'll be reading through and be like, oh man, that's I'm so glad. Like, thank you God for calling me to this. What an honor to do this. And you read the next line and like, oh shoot, <laughs> like I hope you know I got work to do. So um, keep those lists in front of you and just keep letting them be character shaping, heart shaping things. Are really good. Um, so that's what it's not all that the pastoral epistles are about, but the pastoral epistles contain those things that are great for you to know where they are, lock away, dig into, um, keep in front of you all the time. Um, so date and situation for these. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So the dates, I'm going to give you the same date for all three of these books. 
and it's kind of a range. We're not exactly sure, but it's a best guess. Probably somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, somewhere in that range, uh, 62 to 64. So tell me, you guys can uh, kind of think through the timeline a little bit. I don't expect you to have every single date memorized. I don't have every date memorized. I pull out my old notes and look at them. But rebuild the history a little bit in your mind, what we've been talking about through Acts, what you've been reading in Paul, um, what we've been talking about as we've been doing other epistles. Where does this fall in relation to some of the other epistles we've talked about? Do you remember? Just kind of remember dates we've talked about. Where would that fall if it's 62 to 64? So a few years after he's out of jail. Yeah, a few years after. So um, if the timeline we've been following holds, which we're going to keep following, then this would come sometime after the book of Acts, sometime after Paul has been, you know, he was in prison in Rome, or in uh, Ephesus, we've said, while he wrote the prison epistles. Who can remind me what the prison epistles are? Which ones are those? Galatians, Ephesians. Not Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Yeah, good. Uh, Good job, Brandon. So um, those are the prison epistles. They're called the prison epistles because Paul's in prison when he writes them. He also is in prison when he wrote 2 Timothy, but it's a different time that he was in prison, so that's why it's not counted in those things, at least by the dating that we're going by. So um, if Paul was in prison in Ephesus when he wrote those letters, then he got out, did some other travel, more missionary journey stuff, ends up back in Jerusalem where he gets in trouble, then he's in prison in Caesarea, which is just north of Jerusalem a little bit, which is beautiful. By the way, if you ever get to go to Caesarea Maritime, where Paul was probably in prison, it's like a resort coastal gort. Like there's a reason that the famous rich people put their palace fortress there. Because it was like, as long as I'm going to have a palace, it might as well be a great view. I mean, it's phenomenal. And you can kind of see where the ruins of the prison are. It's insane. So um, Paul's in Jerusalem, got in trouble, goes up to prison in Caesarea, just a little bit further north. And then they ship him to Rome. And that's where, at the end of Acts, you remember he had a shipwreck? You remember that part? Mm-hmm. Do you remember where that was? Name, name of the island? Where they ended up going ashore? Yeah. No. Not <laughs> <laughs> huh? No. Paul was in a shipwreck. And he went ashore on a little island, Malta. Oh, that's right. Yeah, little bitty. Um, and that's where, he had ship- that's where he got bit by a snake but suffered no ill effects, it says, which is crazy. And everybody's like, whoa, that's crazy. And he's like, yeah, it's because God, you know, wants my life. So then he ends up going to Rome. He's in prison there. Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome and where he's kind of still preaching. You know, it's like they got him arrested. They got him chained up. And he's like, well, as long as you're here chained to me, you may as well hear why I'm in chains anyway. So Paul ends Acts preaching. But the, by the dating structure we're going by, he got released then. I think he got released then most likely anyway. He got released then, and then I think he got out of prison in Rome and ends up going back east and kind of doing another missionary journey, almost like a fourth missionary journey, where maybe he and Timothy and Titus, this is kind of, this, we don't have this in Acts. This is just like piecing together the evidence we have from these books and doing our best to make, it, to make sense of it. So we think he gets out of prison in Rome, goes back east, maybe back to Jerusalem or Antioch, kind of where his home was, and then does another missionary journey where he stops at Crete. And if you look at a map, it's pretty close. Like on the, you know, if you're looking where, I'm not going to draw it, um, where Jerusalem is, can you picture, like Jerusalem is here, I'm trying to do a map from your angle. Mediterranean Sea is like here. There's a little island pretty close. It would have been like the, the first island stop. Um, so they sail maybe to Crete, some first um, converts there. 
Um, they win some people to faith. They start building a church. First time anybody has been there with the gospel that we would know of. Um, and maybe leaves Titus behind there to pastor. He tells in Titus, he says, remember, I left you there at Crete to establish church leaders, which makes sense if they go there and make some initial converts. And Paul's like, why don't you stay here and build this up into something? Timothy and I are going to carry on back to some other places we've been before. So he and Timothy carry on for a while. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus because they encounter some trouble in Ephesus that Timothy's got to deal with, which we'll talk about in 1 Timothy. Paul goes on a little bit further north and then gets arrested maybe in Troas. And we'll look at evidence for that later, which is a city kind of in between Macedonia. He, been, he went through Troas before uh, in Acts. So that's kind of reconstructing what I think might have happened. Gets arrested again, maybe ends up back in Rome, and that's where he dies um, eventually in, in coming years. So that's kind of how I think the history fits together, if that helps you, if that helps you imagine, helps you kind of see what might have been happening. So these letters are written a little bit after, not tons after, um, less than a decade probably. And um, Paul's writing to, uh, at least in Ephesus, where Timothy is, to a church he would have known, but the situation's changed, and that's why he's kind of fired up about it. Does that make sense so far? We'll see each of these letters, we'll get a little bit more reminder of that picture and see some verses that I think piece it together some for you. But does that make sense? You guys have questions about that so far? Okay. Okay. So that's what I think um, is behind these letters. So let's look real quick at Acts 16. We've um, read this before. We've looked at it before. <clears throat> but let's just take a look at this again and get Timothy kind of in our mind. Would somebody read Acts 16, 1 through 5 for us? Just whoever gets there first and feels like it, go ahead and start. <clears throat> So Timothy has a good reputation among people with him. Um, his mother was a believer. His father wasn't. Paul has him circumcised, which is different than Paul does in most circumstances. I think it's because he had kind of that split heritage, both a Jew and a Gentile parent, that, that Paul isn't just saying, like, you're a Gentile, so just be free and be a Gentile. You're kind of a Jew. It would be good if you were a Jew because then the Jewish people would listen to you. So I think he's taking into account that Timothy has some Jewish heritage and saying, it's going to help the Jewish people listen to you. If you've done this, you don't have to. And later on, we'll see this with Titus. Titus wasn't, or I don't think, um, he was Greek and wasn't circumcised. Paul doesn't make him. Why not? Well, I think maybe because Paul is saying, like, you have no ethnic tie to this. You have no heritage tie to this. You have no family tie to this. Be free. You don't need to. Timothy, it's going to help people listen to you. So I think it's a strategic move on Paul's part missionally. Uh, it's a little odd. We've talked about it before, but I think that's why Paul does it, because he has um, two different parents. So then Timothy starts traveling with Paul at that point, and then he goes um, through the rest of this missionary journey with him, kind of going back and forth and staying back and forth, going to Philippi, um, all that stuff, um, into Thessalonica, staying behind, 
when there's a riot. We've looked at all that stuff through chapter 17. You should look at it again sometime because it's great. Um, does that make sense about Timothy? I just think it's helpful to have that view in our mind. It starts as a young guy with a great reputation that Paul's like, everybody's saying you should come with me. I think they're right. Let's do this thing. And it starts off this great relationship. And if you read the Timothy letters, you'll see so much affection that Paul has for Timothy. You know, he calls him his son, a co-worker, a co-laborer. Like this is a relationship that became really important to him. And so now Timothy is doing ministry, kind of in Paul's footsteps. And Paul writes this letter back to him to encourage him as he's doing that. Um, so that's kind of who Timothy is. So here's the situation that I think is happening. We've talked about this a little, but let's kind of put it in bullet point for you. Behind First Timothy, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. Is that I think what happened? Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct false teaching and reestablish good leaders. To correct false teaching and reestablish good leaders. So um, if, you, if you remember... Um, Paul, you know, spent a long time in Ephesus. We think he was in prison there, maybe. And then Paul spent a long time, a lot of affection for the people, lots of ministry fruit. When he is kind of on his way back to Jerusalem, when he's going to end up being arrested, you can read this in Acts 20. Paul stops in Ephesus, or close to Ephesus, actually, and has the elders come to him. And um, in Acts 20, you can read kind of his charge to them of like, you guys have to carry this on, you know. Um, and then he says, actually, let, let me read that because I think it'll be interesting to have it in the back of our mind as we go through First Timothy and Second. Okay. So, yeah, Sorry. go ahead. Whenever he wrote these, he was in prison at Troas? No, I, I think when he wrote First Timothy, I don't think he was in prison yet. Oh, okay. When he wrote Second Timothy, I think he was probably in prison in Rome. Rome. Yeah. I think he might have been arrested in Troas and taken to Rome. Okay. Think, but we don't know for sure. I'll show you a verse why I think that later. It's kind yeah. of fun. Um, so here's what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus. So he's about to go back to Jerusalem. He thinks he's going to be arrested, thinks that might be it. Um, and then he gets them together, and this is what he says. Um, this is Acts 20, verse 17. For Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. This is a great little ministry verse, by the way. It might be a good one to tuck away in the back of your mind somewhere or hide in your heart. That he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I think that's so good to have in mind as like ministry people, Bible teaching people. If this is going to be good for you, I'm not going to, I'm going to teach it. And... Even if it's like, we're going to have to teach, I'm going to have to dig into it a little bit, I'm going to have to like help you understand, it's going to be helpful to you. So I'm, it's worth it. You know, I'm not hesitating to do that. And he says, I've taught you publicly and from house to house. Isn't that interesting? It's like the big group gathering, like I'm going to preach to this crowd. And then I went house to house, smaller settings, more personal, intimate settings. Both of those things matter a lot. That's just such a cool verse. I haven't hesitated to preach what would be helpful. I've done it publicly. I've done it in your home. Both of those things matter. Um, love that little verse. Verse 21, I declare to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. 
Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And Paul sails off. And as far as we know, doesn't see them again. Maybe he sees some of these people again when he goes back through with Timothy. But in kind of the way we're piecing this history together, if he's released here, right? he's not released here. He goes back to Jerusalem. He's arrested, goes to Rome. If he's released and then travels back and ends up coming back through Ephesus at some point with Timothy, remember we talked about that is the situation for these letters. You following me on that so far? Um, I know it's hard when I'm talking about places in history that you're not always familiar with, so I want to make sure we're following. So he's released from Rome, the end of Acts, and then ends up going back through, leaves Titus on Crete. He and Timothy go up to Ephesus. Maybe he sees some of these people again, but it seems from reading 1 Timothy, which we're going to do in a little bit here, that he encountered some of the problems he thought he was going that they were going to encounter. Like some wolves are going to come in and try to tear this thing apart. Even some from among you are going to distort the teaching and it's going to become false teaching. You've got to be on your guard because if this starts getting off the rails, it's going to be really bad and the leaders have to hold it tight. That's what he's telling them in Acts 20. And then what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, after he's been to Ephesus, leaves Timothy there and Paul carries on, then writes a letter back to Timothy is like, these people are teaching crazy stuff. Like some of these leaders are taking advantage of people. Some of these leaders are not holding fast to what we said they should hold fast to. Timothy, you've got to remind them. You've got to teach them. So it's like maybe he's seeing some of the same people. Maybe it's new people. If it's the same people, how heartbreaking. Like these people that he's given this charge to, he's crying. They're crying as they're leaving. And then he comes back to the church and it's like, wait, you're teaching what? We talked about this. Like this has got to be heart-wrenching for him. So like Timothy you got to stay here and fix this. And then he travels on, and then not, not much after that, writes a letter to Timothy like, how's it going? Like, stay there, fix it. I hope it's getting better. So that's kind of the heart situation for Paul here. Does that make sense? You following that line of thinking? Okay. Um, I think it's so interesting having Acts 20 behind this scenario. Okay. <clears throat> um, so major themes and important um, features in First Timothy. Let's fill these out, and then we'll go through some text, and you'll see it. Um, one, theology that is lived out, theology that is lived out, not argued about, theology that's lived out, not argued about. Um, there's a few different passages in all these letters, but you'll see it a lot in First Timothy where it's like people are just carrying on about like genealogies and myths and all this teaching that's not necessary. Everybody's just arguing and fighting about all these things. Stop doing that. Your lives are a mess. Your character's a mess. Your morality is just like the world's. If what you're believing about God doesn't change the way you're acting, then stop arguing about it. Um, that's a major feature in Timothy, which I think is 
great. What's interesting about that is I think stuff like that can be used sometimes or be diverse about like people just going on and on about like myths and genealogies. Um, but don't do that, you know what Paul's saying. And I think some people can take that and say, see, when you just start talking about theology, it just makes a mess. We don't need that theology stuff. It's just simple. I'm like, I don't think Paul is concerned because Paul answers that with very theological teaching. The problem isn't good theology and deep thinking and good Bible teaching. The problem is false teaching. The problem is um, when he talks about genealogies, I think he's talking about like people holding on to Jewish heritage that's really important. It's that kind of stuff where it's like you're, you're making more out of fleshly stuff, you're making more out of worldly stuff, or you're taking some detail and tying it to Gnosticism. You remember what that is? Who can summarize that for me? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Huh? Is it like not believing in any higher power? Uh, not quite. Not quite. Some of them probably agnostic. got there. Yes. Okay. But so, so similar root word. Mm-hmm. So if agnostic means I don't believe because I can't know. Mm-hmm. So agnostic means I don't know. So Gnosticism is I have special knowledge. Special knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're kind of on the right on the right trail there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Gnostics had this like. Well, now we really know the truth behind it. So you might take some statement or some biblical truth and be like, but now it's been revealed to me, this new way of knowing and believing. Does that make sense? So it's that stuff when Paul's like, you're taking this detail and then creating some argument over here. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, don't do this endless talk. Because he says, don't do that. And then it's like highly theological statement. So don't let that stuff scare you away from doing serious Bible work. Um, because serious Bible work is the answer to those problems. It's not the problem itself. Does that make sense? Um, So, theology that's lived out, not argued about. Secondly, above all else, church leaders must be godly. Above all else, church leaders must be godly. We'll look at these lists in um, which of the two chapters where they are, the list of elder and deacon requirements. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Yeah, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So we'll look at those. And you'll see they, they, there's like one, maybe two statements that have anything to do with like ability or skill or competency. The rest of them are like, are you a good parent? Are you a pure sexually, sexually pure person? Are you a drunkard or not? Are you, it's all stuff like that. Are you easily given to anger and lose your self-control? Those are the questions. And then I think the other stuff is like, if you're that kind of person, character-wise, you'll be a great church leader. Like, it's just a, it's not a competencies list or a skills list. It's a character list. So above all else, church leaders must be godly. That's the, the primary drive. Um, third one, avoiding the love of money. Avoiding the love of money. Um, we just read in Acts 20, and one of the things Paul reminded the elders of is, you saw the way I lived among you. I wasn't coveting. I wasn't trying to get rich. I wasn't taking tons of money from you. I worked to make my money so that I could teach and lead among you. So, which we talked about before, I don't think Paul's model of earning his own way for every dime is the required model for everybody because Paul also advocates that um, vocational spiritual teachers do get paid. But Paul is just big on not using that for selfish gain. Um, so that's a big deal to him, he says in Acts 20. It's a big deal to him we've read in other places in Scripture. Um, in First Timothy, there's a couple places where he's like, if you start using this, to gain money or to gain power that turns into wealth, it's going to corrupt you. Um, so that's a big deal here. Fourth, the importance of the church's reputation. The importance of the church's reputation. 
Um, which I think is a, kind of a no-brainer that matters to us, you know, that matters to people. If the church has a bad reputation, it's really hard to do great mission, you know. If the church has a bad reputation, it's hard personally to evangelize. If the church has a bad reputation, people don't really want to come. Don't believe what you believe in. Don't think it actually matters. So the church's reputation matters. But think again about the human person, Paul. If he's established this church, spent years there, built into these elders, so much so that they travel to come meet him, and he travels to go meet them. In a day and age where travel is not easy at all. You know, I just drove to New Mexico for Thanksgiving, and that was pretty easy, you know, which is insane. That's a long drive. This would not have been easy. They care enough about each other to travel to make that happen. Like, this is a deep heart connection to these people. And then he goes back and sees that it is not going well. Those leaders have not held the line. Some of them may have gotten corrupted. Some of them have allowed corruption in. Some of them may be gone, and so new people took over. I don't know what all happened, but heart, heart, heartbreaking stuff. And so Paul knows this church, knows these people, knows the leaders, won the converts, left it in those hands. And then he's like, wait, you guys are just like the world? What do they think about you? They think you're just, how are you living? Like the reputation of this church is going to be devastating to him. So it matters even that much more, I think, because of his personal tie. Um, the last one, um, it's a theme. You'll see it in First Timothy, um, but also Second Timothy and Titus a little bit, is the trustworthy sayings. The trustworthy sayings. Um, so that's parts in these books where Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. And then he kind of says a statement. So we're not sure if those are like, you know, would have been almost like Proverbs then that people would have known. Like, hey, remember, this is something we all believe. And it's like he's quoting something they know. Or if it's just something Paul's writing then, but he's just drawing attention to it. I don't know. It could be like any speaker, you know, if it's just like, hey, I want to say something. Hey, make sure you listen to this. You know, that would be, it may be that kind of thing. Where he's like writing a bunch of stuff. But, hey, listen, listen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something you need to hear. It could just be as simple as that. Um, but you'll see those throughout. Um, let's go ahead and look at all those references here real quick. Because we'll kind of... Um, see them maybe pop out as we go through the books, but let's just look at them. So, First Timothy one fifteen is the first one. Uh, this is what it says. Paul says, "Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst." Um, which is a great passage to know. This is because Paul, you know, I think this is one of the ones that gets talked about Paul a lot. He said he was the worst of sinners. This is where he said it. Um, here's the church where saying is our soul acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I would just add on here a little bit applicationally for us. I think if Paul felt that way, I think we should be able to feel that way too. And not just give lip service to it. But I think, I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but I'll emphasize it again because I think it matters. Um, I think if we really are honest about the depths of our heart and the yucky places there, it wouldn't be hard for me to really get to like, yeah, I, I think I'm the worst, you know. And I think if you can't find that attitude somewhere in yourself, you're probably missing a pretty valuable piece of humility. If there's that, um, like, Pharisaical, you know the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee who's praying and then the tax collector who's praying and the difference? And that Pharisee's like, you know, thank God I'm not like him. Like, that's the opposite of this statement. Rather than just being able to say, there are so many things in here that if everybody could see, it'd just be black, you know, I'm the, I'm the worst of sinners. I just think that's a healthy attitude to have and an appropriate attitude to have before the Lord and before the congregations where we serve. I'm never lording it over them, but as a servant to them because I really believe I'm the worst of sinners, that Jesus came into the world to save, which is pretty cool. So that's 115. Um, 3.1 is the next one, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. 
Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer um, or a bishop, the word in Greek is where the word bishop comes from, like just the way it sounds. So bishop, overseer, church leader, you know, somebody who's administrating the affairs of the church. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, I think that's a really good verse um, that you have to keep in check sometimes because sometimes you'll see this in, we'll see this in ourselves, if you're honest, and sometimes you'll see it in church leader people where they just really, really, really want to be in charge, really want to lead, really think they're God's gift to the church. And I remember when I was leading a class, somebody came for the first time to our class and sat there and just was like disruptive the whole time. Just always had a question, always had something to say, first time there, and it was like all crazy stuff. So I'm like trying to shut him down all day. And then he comes up to me after class and he's like, uh, I'm, I'm really gifted in teaching, I'd love to teach sometime. When can I teach? And I'm like, never, you know? <laughs> um, and I didn't let him teach. But, and I think he ended up teaching somewhere else in the church. Okay, I'm, I wasn't in charge of that. Um, but that, it's that kind of attitude, I think, that is like, why do you think you can just walk in somewhere and be like, you know, I should be teaching this room. Like, you don't know anybody here. You don't know, you know, like, you have to be able to serve before you can lead. But pair that with this one where Paul says, if you're desiring this, that's a noble desire. Like, um, I know a couple guys in our church who... I think would say this, and in matter of fact, keeping one fifteen and three one together is probably a healthy way to do it. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, I am the worst of sinners, mm-hmm. but I kind of have this desire to be able to contribute to the church with my gifts. I would really love to be able to help lead, because I think God's gifted and called me to do that. I don't think I'm worthy of it. I'd love to be able to. What can I do to be able to be the kind of person who, who could earn that? Does that make sense? I think holding those things in balance works, because I know some people who are like, I, I would be so honored to be able to be a deacon here, to be able to be an elder here. But man, I need to mature, I need to grow, I need to learn, what can I do to prepare myself if that's something that God calls me to someday. And if he doesn't, I'm content. I think that's where that attitude comes. If he doesn't, I'm content. What can I do to prepare? But yeah, I would love to do that. Um, it can be a noble thing. That's not a bad desire as long as it's coupled with humility. Yeah, Haley. Um, what is the Uh, good question. So those, what the words mean, which I think can help. The the bishop word, like in my translation, is overseer. So like somebody who oversees things. It's it's more of like the um, you lead by making sure everyone else is doing what they are made to do and called to do, and you kind of oversee the work. It's kind of what the word more means. Um, the elder word is, um, I, I think. Oh, gosh, I don't remember now for sure. Um, is sometimes used interchangeably in Scripture in the Greek with shepherd. So like, to be an elder is to be like, some, for one, it means older, an older person. It's just what the word means usually when it's used. The function of that person is a shepherding thing more than an oversight thing. Does that make sense? So it's a little bit more like directing, gently moving us along. And then the deacon word means like servant. It's the same word used as like a waiter in a restaurant. So just linguistically, that's what those terms mean. Um, when you read, like even in these letters, it's not real, Paul never says, this is the job of a bishop, and this is the job of an elder, and this is the job of a deacon, so find people for those roles, and here's how you put it in place. He just doesn't do that. Sometimes a lot of those words are used interchangeably, where it's like, what exactly, what role is he talking about? And Paul would be like, I don't know what you mean by role, but you've got people who are good at this stuff, right? Like, who are the most godly people you have? Have them lead. Like, I think that's kind of what Paul would say. 
So I, I think because of that, because of the vagueness, because of the interchangeability, I think there's room in scripture for different churches to um, kind of build a structure that makes sense. As long as you're within the parameters of what, of the character stuff and within the parameters of the kinds of things that Paul talks about. I don't think he's advocating this is the exact structure it needs to be. It's more like these are the kinds of people that you should be using. Does that make sense to yeah. help? And it's kind of similar to my next question is like, why do we have bishops here? Because I know other churches like I think for people have bishops. Yeah. But like what what makes it some people don't, some people do? Yeah. Um, and, and that's again just kind of every church's structure decision some churches probably feel real strongly about that it's correct some churches probably feel like this is effective so we do it um, the way I know there's probably lots of different ways that it can function the way I know of bishops functioning I know the Anglican church has them I think the Methodist church in the US has them Anglican means Church of England by the way so what they usually do is like they're in a geographical area and they help oversee the pastors who are overseeing local churches in that area. So um, I can see that being an efficient thing, especially if you're in a denomination where all the churches are connected. You would want to kind of have sub-leaders. Because in our movement, partially, partially um, one of the reasons is we're, all of our churches are independent. So we might know other churches, but we have nothing to do with leading them. They have nothing to do with leading us. So to have a bishop overseeing several, our movement will would just say that no, every church should be independent. So we don't really have an oversight of multiple churches role. I would say though, um, if I was to put a role to it, especially in large church like ours, an executive pastor maybe is a little bit more like how I would picture a bishop role. We wouldn't call them that just because of what it implies typically. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's the kind of work that I would picture you know, of like we're overseeing the way these campuses function. That's pretty similar, you know, in a in another setting. So that's what I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anything else on that stuff? That's a good question. Do you know that like you know whenever like a company has I guess like a preacher or a pastor come in, but that's like a normal what is that term? Like they're this typically like a job description. Where it's like, like for instance, like I know Forward has a guy that like they'll come in and they preach or like they'll pray for people. You mean chaplain? Is that what yeah. you're thinking? That, yeah. that kind of sounds similar-ish, but more for church work. To if you like, I just think of like a chaplain. Like I think a chaplain goes to different places in a certain area, mm -hmm. and like I don't. That just kind of sounds similar-esque. Um, yeah, I could. I see what you mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's it's a little bit like an itinerant preacher like somebody who travel around all the time you know just go town to town and be like anybody want to hear me preach i'm gonna preach tonight <laughs> you know yeah um which is what francis asbury did griffin's guy yeah. coffee's dead if anybody's wanting a cup of coffee you can go pour a cup of coffee uh other questions thoughts on that stuff that's something that i think it's an important question because <clears throat> these books talk about that a lot which is part of why they're called the pastoral epistles um by the way the word pastor is the sheep word the shepherd word um, the elder word is sometimes used interchangeably with it. That's what I was thinking. Pastor, that's the word. Um, but I think sometimes we can, you can get yourself stuck a little bit if you're like, oh, these are the manuals for how you do church leadership. I just really don't think they are. I think they do give lists of character qualifications, but I don't think Paul lays out structure. I think he uses a bunch of words that can mean lots of different things. So if you go into it that way and just let him inform, these are the kinds of people we're looking for. 
what structure makes sense for our church. I think there's freedom biblically to do that from what I see. Okay. Uh, good? Yeah, what's yeah. up? So I hear there is, uh, like we have reverends, we have uh, bishops, we have pastors, and I'm like, those are a lot of titles in the church already, like and we have now deacons, um, apostles, and I'm like, what's the point? What's the point of having all those names? And it seems as if like there are titles based on like, the bishop is like up here, they say the reverends like, you know, like, yeah. They, they, they are like kind of structured in some sort of way. I, I really don't even know why. But, um, and in our culture, it's like more of uh, they, they're all in one church. You know? Yeah. You're like just a small church, but it has a bishop, it has a reverend, it has a pastor, and it's mm-hmm. just, it has an apostle. Like, there's a lot of titles there. And mm-hmm. I don't really get all that to the point of it. Yeah. I, I will kind of agree. I mean, all those words are <laughs> words you can find in Scripture to some degree. But I don't think they're, I, I know, they're never laid out as like, and here are the job descriptions for those. Or here's the order that they fall in, or the hierarchy, or how you have to have them all in church. If anything, Jesus, you know, Jesus talks about like, even the rabbis in his day, being like, why are you expecting to be called a certain thing? Like, don't have people call you a title, just be their servant. Yeah, that was kind of Jesus' bent. Which is, I think, Paul kind of inherits, like, he's using word, when he uses the word pastor or bishop even, I don't think he's writing with a capital letter being like, the bishop. I think he's using the word for overseer, somebody who oversees stuff. And then we capitalized it and made it a title. I think same with apostle. Most of the time in scripture, that word apostle just means like somebody sent from somewhere with a message. So what this what the word, Greek word means. You know, it's a normal word that we turn into an apostle. And some of that comes from like the 12 disciples were called apostles. And so we capitalize that to try to show they're different than what we mean by just somebody who would be sent with a message because they have a, like a role to play that Jesus called them to. But then that turns into, do we still have apostles today? I don't know. And I think my guess is that Paul would be like, well, yeah, in terms of like people are sent and have a message to give on like God's authority and by his calling. Yeah, you have apostles. Be like, so you mean that they're like in charge of everything and they have the messages that come directly from God? And Paul would be like, why would you say that? Like, I, I think, I think those, the combination of those things would confuse him. So different churches have different things and different titles. And like I said, I think in scripture, there's, it's not so clearly delineated that there's a single right way to do it. There's freedom for us to use what makes sense structurally because structure really helps function. Um, but I think the danger that can come and using those words is not altogether bad but I think the danger that can come with when you have that like well this is the reverend and this is the bishop and this is an apostle is somebody to use Jesus' words lording it over others because I am the reverend so and so and so you must revere me that's what that word means you know give me honor like well I don't think I don't like that or I am the apostle so I have the truth that you must obey well I don't want to claim that kind of power over anybody either or I'm the bishop so you have to do what I say like well I think Paul would be pretty clear about not just being a dictator demanding that everybody follow falls in line but saying let's open scripture and do it together so 
I think using titles, using words that come from the text to organize makes sense. I think when they start creating heart problems, it's a problem. Which is one of the things I love about the restoration movement. Like one of our, the like Christian churches that we're part of, is that one of our big things, it's kind of a cheesy thing to say, but it's so helpful, is we just want to call Bible things by Bible names, is what they say. So I like being able to use Bible words to describe stuff. Um, but because Paul doesn't use those words as capitalized titles, we don't either. Like I'll use the word, you know, it's an overseer or whatever, but it's not a job. It's a description of how people function. So I like that. And I like being able to say, like, I, I would rather be called a minister than a pastor. Because I think that's at least just as often in Scripture used to describe the kinds of things we do. And it means somebody who, like, serves and helps meet the needs of people. Um, so I like that. I'd rather, I think I'd rather be a minister than a pastor because the pastor thing can become, I am the pastor of the flock. And I don't think that's a bad word. I like it also. I like being a shepherd leader, which is what the word pastor means. But because of what it has sometimes meant, I think it's good to use the other more common word. Does that make sense? So I don't know. That's a whole long rambling around. I think anytime titles start becoming power plays or job seats that exclude people or lord it over people or creating extra hierarchy, then you're probably misusing it. And I think Paul would be confused. Is what I think. That's a good question. Okay. First Timothy four nine. Paul says, "This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe." <coughs> um, another great one. Some people will will take this phrase and be like, "So God's going to save everybody, and then He's just going to save those who believe first, but." Maybe God's a universalist because it says he's going to save everybody. Um, I think to put that category on this is probably imposing like a later um, modernist or postmodernist kind of view, you know, era-wise, not those philosophy, to put a different view on Paul than he's trying to convey. I think he's just trying to say God's saving everybody, like those of us who believe. I think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's trying to make a statement that God is a universalist. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just think it's worth knowing because some people will really latch on to that verse. Um, flip over to 2 Timothy. Let's look at the next one. This doesn't look like this is a trustworthy saying, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know where I got that. Maybe I messed up somewhere. Does anybody know where the other 2 Timothy trustworthy saying is? 211. 211. There you go. Sorry. So 2.11 on your sheet. Should, it should be what your sheet says. Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he'll also disown us. If we're faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Um, which is such a cool passage. I love those first two especially. You know, we died with him, we'll live with him. We endure, we'll reign with him. Especially that second promise, speaking to persecuted believers who are very much in the margins. Paul's like, hey, endure this. You're going to get a throne someday. Like, that's a crazy kind of promise. Um, but then that one, if we disown him, he'll disown us. It's like, oh, that kind of jolt you out of how glorious it may seem to reign. It's like, well, you need to stay faithful. If you disown him, he's not going to just stand by you, which is interesting to keep in mind, especially as we go into Hebrews next week, as we talk about Romans a few weeks ago. 
the TULIP acronym from our friends. If you disown him, he'll disown us. There's something there. But I love this too. If we're faithless, he's still faithful. So like even if we turn on him, even if we lose our faith, even if we don't keep our promises, he hasn't changed. It may have effects for us. If we disown him, he'll disown us. But his faithfulness is not dependent on our ability to maintain it. His faithfulness is his faithfulness. He's trustworthy. He's unmoved. Um, that's pretty cool about who he is. Okay, Titus 3.8. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I think that probably the trustworthy saying is before that, and he's concluding and saying, so really drive this home. So let's go back up, verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Um, So I think he's ending that there and then saying so really drive that home to people does that make sense so i <coughs> sorry i love those like points of emphasis through the pastoral epistles where it's like we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff and hey listen up to this don't lose this and notice how like big picture theology about the story of jesus all of these things are jesus came into the world to save sinners and i'm the worst one um the one we just read if you you know uh die with him you'll live with him if we endure we'll reign with him um where's the other one um we put our hope in the living God who's the savior of all men and especially those who believe. So most of these are these big, like, the gospel statement. What's the one that's not? Do you remember? One of these kind of sticks out different. Four nine. No, I'm thinking three one. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Isn't that interesting? All throughout these letters, it's like, here's a trustworthy saying. Jesus is the savior of people who believe. Here's a trustworthy saying, we're going to reign with him someday. Here's another trustworthy saying, you want to be a good leader? That's good. Interesting how important that is, right? Like I think, I think um, Paul drawing emphasis to that is like, this really matters. Like if you get leaders who either are desiring it in a non-noble way and they don't meet these criteria, it's going to be real bad. Trustworthy saying, your church will fall apart if you have leaders who are not godly. Here's a trustworthy saying. If you have leaders who are godly, who hold tight to the gospel, who remember all these other truths, you're going to be good. I just think it's interesting that that's the one that sticks out and how important, healthy, godly, humble leadership is for a church. It's like, it's such a hinge. Um, I think it's interesting how it sticks out like that. Does that make sense? Okay, let's flip the page. And kind of go real quick through an outline of First Timothy. <coughs> All right, First Timothy 1, um, kind of most of that chapter, uh, your blanks are instructions to Timothy. <clears throat> so this is Paul just kind of being like, hey, I'm writing this letter. Um, look at verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. Where is Macedonia again? Do you remember geographically? 
in that part? It's like north, north of what? Yeah, you're right. It's just up there on the map. Just in north somewhere. <laughs> north Pole. Yeah. That's, all. That's good. It's like north of Greece, or the northern part of Greece, depending on who you ask. Uh, Macedonia is right there. So Paul's saying, I went up into Macedonia. I told you to stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. These are Paul's kind of harsh words for the false teachers that have infiltrated Ephesus, and he's telling Timothy, stay there. I wonder, this is imagination here, but I just wonder if these are, either if they're people he knows that he's not really mad at, or if they're just new leaders that he met and left Timothy there, and he's just so fed up with them, that I just wonder if when he writes like, I commanded you to stay there, so do you may command certain men, you know, I'm not even going to say their name, like he's just so mad about it. I just wonder if that's behind it um, a little bit, and he's like, they're just so misled and misleading this church. Um, but let's, for us, also hold on to, especially verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Let that convict you and make you uncomfortable a little bit, too. You you are, no matter how, some of you have probably have, like, big, deep aspirations to be a teacher of Scripture. And that's great. That is, you desire a noble task. Some of you are like, I don't know that that's really my primary thing. You will do it. You're going to be a handler of scripture for people. You are regularly, probably more than you realize now. You are a teacher of the law. So don't let this be true about you. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a teacher of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Man, I don't want that to be true of me. Mm -hmm. I want to know what I'm talking about, which means it takes hard work. It takes memorizing. It takes studying. It takes reading history. It takes reading it over and over again. You don't have to become a scholar. But if you're teaching scripture, know what you're talking about. And if you're going to talk confidently and kind of boldly in front of people, know what you're talking about. Have a reason to be confident. Mm-hmm. I just want to call you to that. Again, you don't have to be a scholar, but man, know what you're talking about. Don't let Paul say that about you someday. Um, so this is Paul saying, Timothy, this is what you're going to do. This is what I called you to do, um, which is most of chapter 1 there. Um, at the end of chapter 1, um, my little heading just says the Lord's grace to Paul. But that one where Paul talks about basically like, I can't believe I get to do this, which is where that first trustworthy saying comes. God's grace came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I can't believe now that I get to do this work. That's kind of what Paul's saying and calling um, Timothy into um, the same kind of calling. So here's kind of that next little subset. And this is how I'll break up um, First Timothy in a way that I think is really interesting. So he kind of has that opening chapter that's like, Timothy, here's what you're doing. Remember, I left you there to do this work, build up leaders, correct false teaching. But then in one fifteen through 17, um, your blanks are a doctrinal anchor. Doctrinal anchor. I think there's these few spots throughout First Timothy where it's like, okay, let me give you some instructions and talk specifics. Now remember, this is the doctrine we're building on. And for a church that has now been swayed and drifted out to sea, drop that anchor deep in this truth. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So right in the middle of these instructions, Paul just like breaks out into this, like this is why it matters so much. 
if this is really true about who God is, about who Jesus is, drop that anchor deep and don't let that ship be blown off course. you got to anchor down. Um, so that's the doctrinal anchor in this section. Um, 1 Timothy 2 to 3, then, on your outline, I would call instructions for Ephesus. So the first one was kind of instructions to Timothy. Like, okay, Timothy, remember what you're called to. This is why I left you there. Do some good work. This is our ministry. And then chapters 2 through 3 are more like specific instructions. For like, okay, now here's how you're going to do that in your context. I left you there to build up good leaders, correct false teaching. Let's get specific to your, to your situation. So instructions for Ephesus. Um, let's look at a couple of these. Um, let's just read a lot because there's a lot here. First Timothy 2. It's going to be fun. Um, so First Timothy 2.1 says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Which I think for us is probably relatively normal. I don't know about y'all, but I, I grew up in a church where it was pretty often talked about, we're going to pray for our leaders, you know, pray for the president or whoever. I grew up in a home where we did that a lot. I remember doing that a lot. And that was just part of our you know, normal prayer rhythm, which is good. It's in the Bible. Glad we did it. Um, but for these people hearing this, they're like, hey, you know that guy that you hate who built a statue of himself in your town, who taxes you to death and is kind of mean to you because you became a Christian? Pray for him. You know, like, pray that he dies? Like, no, pray for him <laughs> so that you can live a better life. Like, pray that God maybe saves him. Pray that the kingdom can be peaceful. You know, like, I, this is a pretty probably uncomfortable call for these people. I just think it's important to remember the context is very different than ours. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, lots to talk about here, so let's try. Um, one, one of our very first residents ever when uh, they were interviewing for this program went home and told their mom, like, I interviewed for this program. It's called 215. Oh, why is it called that? It comes from 1 Timothy 215. Mm-hmm. So they opened the Bible together and read it. <laughs> Women will be saved through childbearing. If it, what program are you doing? Like, wait, 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 no, 2 Timothy. So remember, 2 Timothy is what this program is about. Not first. Uh, okay, so let's talk first about... Um, isn't that crazy? It's, 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 it's a different program. Yeah, it's a very... Very different program that I'm not going to leave. Okay, so look at verse 8. We're back. Um, so I think it would be easy to start this either by looking at verse 9 or verse 11 and jump to those and be like, unpack that. We will. Look at verse 8 first, though. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So this starts with Paul calling men to, I, I think, still even, what is a pretty stereotypically male problem. Which doesn't mean it's the only male problem, and doesn't mean that it's only a male problem, 
But I do think Paul's like, hey, okay, if you're leading this church, make sure the men aren't angry and aren't fighting with each other, aren't like being prideful, loud, boastful, angry guys. I think that's a pretty typical kind of call. Um, and I think it needs to start there, that Paul's saying, men, you got issues you got to deal with. Again, not only a male issue and not the only male issue, but if Paul's writing generally to establish a better culture in the church, it makes sense that that would be something he'd identify. Then he moves to, now I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. So again, not only a female issue, not the only female issue, one that he wants to point out if he's helping establish a culture. What I think is important here too is that the primary thing he talks about here is not even related to, it's part of it, but I think primarily he's not even talking about sexuality when he's talking about modesty. He's talking about over-the-top wealth and attention-seeking, which is a different kind of category, Mm -hmm. which I think in Ephesus, even from what we know historically studying, would have been an issue. Um, And in Ephesus, their main pagan worship was a goddess who was very, would have been known as very, like, wealthy, attention-seeking, like, very um, obvious to see. Does that make sense? So I think what Paul's calling out here is less about, like, you have to nitpick all of your clothing and more saying, if you're walking into church and treating it like a fashion show where you're getting all the attention, you're missing it. Don't do that. Which, again, is not the only female issue and not only a female issue, but Paul is hitting big categories as he's building a culture. Does that make sense for this passage? I, that, diff, that shift of framework, because when I read like women dress modestly, I download a whole set of things. I think that's a piece of the puzzle here. I think the larger puzzle piece is Paul saying, don't make the way you're carrying yourself in public about attention seeking with the biggest gold and the largest, you know, like you just walk in and every head turns. Don't make that your point, um, which I think is the bigger driver. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What Paul's saying here? Next one, verse 11. He says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So, lots of things here. Here's what I think. Um, I don't think that when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, she must be silent. I don't think Paul means, in every church gathering, women are not allowed to say a word. Women can never say anything educational or informative about Scripture, sit there quietly, and then go home. I don't think that's what he means, because he's said opposite things in other places. So like in 1 Corinthians, he assumes women are part of the group of people who are prophesying, which is more like our preaching um, than what you might think of as crazy prophesying stuff. So in 1 Corinthians, he's assuming that's happening. He just says, this is happening. When women do this, here's how you do it. Um, So that's happening. In some degree. So for Paul then to just say, like, this is what I do. Nobody talks. Like, but they were before. So I don't think, like, this one is the the more odd language. So I don't want to read the more odd language and make that the norm. And then force the other more normal statement to try to fit into an odder statement. Does that make sense? As I'm interpreting these two together. I'm going to read this one and say, wait, earlier in a different book, he wrote this. So what this is saying shouldn't contradict that. I think what Paul is saying um, is that the emphasis um, should be more in the beginning part of verse 11 rather than at the end of verse 11 and into verse 12. I think we tend to read it as like a woman should learn in quietness and submission and be quiet and not teach. I think that's what we tend to see because those words are harsh and feel abrasive, which it makes sense. 
I think the emphasis is more like a woman should learn. Like let let the women in your church learn and study. Give them some quiet. Let them, when we read submission, again, we download this whole set of things. I think that word could just as easily mean let your women come under teaching so that they can be taught and learn. Give them space to learn because that would not have always been the case in the ancient world. So I think what Paul is saying here is not women have to be quiet and submit and never talk. I think what he's saying is let women be educated in this stuff. And until they are, don't let them teach. Just like it, what uh, chapter 3 is about to start talking about, if you're evaluating a man to be an elder of the church and he's not qualified to do it, don't let him do it. I think he would say, if you're having somebody stand up and teach who hasn't been educated, don't let them do it. Because the whole reason this is a problem is false teaching and misunderstanding and people who want to be teachers of the law but don't know what they're talking about. Does that make sense? So I think in the flow of the bigger picture... I don't think Paul is just drawing this all of a sudden. Women can't talk. I think Paul is saying, look at the flow of the argument. If somebody's going to stand up and talk, let them have the education to do so. And don't just prohibit it or don't allow it. That's going to be false teaching. Does that make sense? That's how I read this passage. Regardless of the details you put in it, it's a tough one. Like it's, you know, it's tough. And I could make that case to some people who would vehemently disagree with me on the hyper-conservative side. I can make that case with some people who would vehemently disagree with me on a far more progressive side. I feel like this is somewhere of a middle ground stance that to me makes sense of the text in its context. It's still a tricky text, um, but that's how I, what I see. So then to go into verse 15, because we're not done with the fun stuff in this section. <laughs> to go into verse 15, I think what Paul is saying, some people I think would use this to say, women are saved when they have kids, and that's your job, and you will be saved when you, have, when you bear children because that's how God ordained it. Like, I think more likely um, he is talking about one of two things. I, th- I think the first is less likely. I think the second is more. Some people will, will view this to say, just like anyone else, women are saved through the birth of the child, the child that was born. And this is kind of a veiled Christmas reference almost. Does that make sense? Just like all of us are. There was a child who was born who brings salvation. I think that's cool, but I don't think that's probably what was meant. I, th- <laughs> I think it's more likely <clears throat> that Paul's saying, like, um, childbearing is hard, childbearing is scary, physically demanding. Women will make it through it. Um, that the, Because he just referred in the verse before to Adam and Eve and the curse. Part of the curse was pain through childbearing. You remember that? When Adam and Eve are cursed, Adam's got to work and it's going to be miserable. Eve, when you have kids, it's going to be miserable. Everything's broken. So Paul references that, this whole brokenness. He's like, but childbearing doesn't have the last... Like, it's not going to kill all of you. The curse doesn't reign over you. We have more important things to do. The gospel's still going to advance. Continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. And go back up here. Let's do good teaching. Let's do good learning. The curse doesn't have the last word. We're going to be saved through this because God has brought salvation to all of us to defeat the curse does that make sense that's what i think makes the most sense of all the pieces and doesn't just randomly give like why would paul say that he doesn't say anything like that anywhere else why would he just randomly drop this gigantic thing that doesn't make sense that's how i read these verses it's not the only way to read them that's how i read them does that make sense questions or thoughts
Okay. Let's talk more about it because I will talk too long on it if I keep going. So let's keep going through. But good. Yeah, it's, it's big. It's big. It's good. <clears throat> okay. For now? Okay. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16 is the next, what I would call kind of doctrinal anchor. So that's your next blank here. <coughs> Remember, there's a few of them here. So he's done all this teaching, all this stuff in chapter 2, chapter 3. You're looking for deacons, elders, overseers. This is what you got to look for. And then verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. So again, it's like, why does all this matter? Why does how we worship matter? Why do your heart attitudes and your postures, why does correcting this stuff that's naturally evil in us that comes out, why is overcoming the curse part of what we have to deal with in the church regularly? Because God appeared in the body. He was vindicated by the Spirit, preached among the nations, believed on the world, taken up into glory. Drop that anchor deep. That's what we're doing. It's worth the fight. It's worth the hard stuff. It's worth figuring out how to live in a culture that's antagonistic to what we do because he was taken up into glory. God really came down. You really believe it. Drop that anchor deep and let's not give up. I think is how Paul sums up. Is that making sense still so far? Following the flow? Okay. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6, 10, more instructions for Ephesus. So again, some more like, all right, Timothy, here's how you're going to do this. Um, here's how we're going to live out this Ephesus thing. <clears throat> Lots of great stuff in those sections. Let me point out a couple of verses to you. You all right? What was the one? Instructions for Ephesus. Yeah. Um, let me just pull out a few verses from this section um, rather than read it all because they're verses that I think you should know and remember. Right? Okay. So look at um, chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. It's a great verse to know. It's a great verse to lock away. Here's another really important thing about this verse. We use this a lot in like children's ministry, youth ministry, which I think is good and worthwhile, and we shouldn't stop doing. I think Timothy was probably closer to like 30 when he got this letter. So... Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. This is for you too. It's not just for the little ones. This is for me too. Like Timothy's in my age ballpark. Don't let anyone look down on us because we're young. But what are we called to do? Set an example. It doesn't say don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But take that young energy and brashfully lead and everywhere until they, like keep speaking up until they listen. Somebody says, set an example in your speech, in your life in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Like, let those things be the hallmark of what you lead, how you lead over the next decade of your life. There may be all kinds of other things that are really impactful also, and do those as God gives opportunity. <clears throat> the big thing that Paul calls Timothy to, though, as maybe a 30-year-old, is you just set a great example. Live a good, godly life. Have good, guarded, holy speech. Live a pure life. Have great faith. Have deep love. That's, how, that's what I want you to do as a bold young leader. I love that. I love that call to us. Um, so that's a good verse to know. Um, chapter 5, verse 8, another good one you should know. Um, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa. Um, so this is one of those sections um, that I think this is a good thing that... Um, Men especially get this, like, I need to be the provider for my family. I am called to do that. That is the male, husband, whatever, father role in a family. And I think that is a good and appropriate mantle for someone to carry. Um, 
But for one, I would say it doesn't only have to be male. And this is something I always say. Paul's talking financially here a lot about like if there's a widow, you need to take care of her. If you have a, you know, your mom, her husband dies, you need to help take care of them, take her in. Um, be good to your family. I think that is part of the call. The other thing I just say, this isn't so much about Timothy, but I just think this is important. I, I'll tell this to guys a lot when I'm doing premarital counseling or stuff. Um, I think it's important for you to know because, again, not only a male problem, not the only male problem, something that happens a lot is I think guys get really big on this, I have to be a provider. Or sometimes a new wife will get really big on, like, he's supposed to be a provider. For one, I would say, why don't we both figure out how to provide for our family? And that is a good and healthy and appropriate way to do it. Secondly, I would say, yes, I think it's good for a man to say, I should be able to provide for my family so that I don't deny the faith and worsen a believer. That is an important thing to do. If I'm sitting around being lazy, Paul would tell us in 1 Thessalonians, well, then don't eat. You got to work. Like, that's how the world works. You got to be able to work hard. So um, all that stuff goes together. But something I see a lot is it's not only, but especially men who get this huge drive, I've got to be a provider, which then, I don't think they set out to do this, but becomes the excuse to never be home, to always be working, to make money, 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 and throw money at all the problems, and throw money at the kids, and throw money at the spouse, and try to show, look how great of a provider I am. Isn't that my job? Why are you mad at me? I provide. I made this money. I'm traveling five days a week so that I can earn money. I would say the primary provision that a man can give his family is his presence more than his money. Both matter, but I say that a lot to guys, especially in premarital, or because I think it just can become a really unhealthy drive. And I think most people, would, if you really are honest, would rather have less and have each other and have you present and have kids not have the issues of an absent father or absent mother because they're so driven to provide. It's like, give me less money and give me the presence of a good godly father or mother every time, every single time. So I just think it's so important to be able to say, yes, provision matters. This is a section that speaks to financial provision. Part of providing is providing my presence, my blessing, my guidance, my leadership in my home. If I don't provide that, I deny the faith and immersion of an unbeliever. I think that's part of the puzzle. Does that make sense? Okay, um, chapter 6, verse 6. This is another good one I want to point out to you. All that chapter 5 is really, really, really good. Um, so don't skip over it, but... Six for six is really good. Um, this is one of the sections where Paul's talking about loving money and how that's a root of all kinds of problems. But in chapter six for six, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, that kind of ties into what we were just talking about a minute ago. But in general, this is such a great thing. Be godly, be content, and you're, you'll have what you need. You know, you don't need to become wealthy. Be content. Maybe wealth comes, but be godly, be content, and you're going to be a good spot. Um, look at chapter 6, verse 10. You would probably know this verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Just um, store that in your heart somewhere too. That's a good one to always kind of reflect on and always keep in front of you and just like, I don't want to love money. Where, where is the love of money seeped into my soul? It's amazing how quick it gets in there, how easy it gets in there. And it's a root of all kinds of evil. It is. Um, look at 6, 15 to 16. This is kind of your next little bullet point blank. What do you think those blanks are? Doctrinal anchor. Doctrinal anchor. So look at 6, um, verse 15. Um, 
So we're going to kind of pick Paul up mid-sentence because he breaks mid-sentence into another mid-sentence. So we'll just kind of let, let you feel Paul. So God's finishing a thought, which God will bring about in his own time. God, like, by the way, I mentioned God. Did I mention God? I want to tell you about God. This is kind of what he's doing. Um, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Isn't that cool? Lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So again, it's like he's talking about money and being godly and a godly leader. And Timothy, make sure that you're holding on to these things because God is like so glorious you can't even see him. That's how much this matters. So why would you care about making more money? The God you serve who knows you by name lives in light that you can't even see and live. So who cares how sparkly gold is? doesn't matter. We're going to see his light someday. That's what we're living for. Hold on to that, Timothy. Drop that anchor deep. Um, it's pretty cool, the way that structures. Um, so then, kind of your last thing, chapters, um, chapter 6, 11 through 21, um, which goes back you know, above this and in, in covers it, is instructions to Timothy. So it starts with, all right, Timothy, here's what I called you to do. And in the middle is more specifics, like deal with this in Ephesus. And then at the end is more like, all right, Timothy. So if you're going to do that, remember, hold on to your faith. Hold on to your hope. Hold on to your theology. Um, that's how you're going to do this thing. Does that make sense from First Timothy? Okay. I think that outline's helpful. I don't always like to give you outlines because sometimes it's just like an outline doesn't matter. But I think sometimes seeing it broken down is like, oh, I see a movement here and I see themes here. Um, so I think that one's, that one's helpful. All right. I'm going to keep rolling. If you want to get up, go to the bathroom, go for it. The coffee finished brewing in the Mocha Master, go for it. But I'm just going to keep teaching. Okay? Second Timothy. Date is, what do you think? 62 to 64. Yeah, somewhere in that range, I think, from 62 to 64. The situation here is Paul's final letter. So we think this is the last one that he wrote, the latest that he wrote. Um, it may be in the form of a Jewish genre called a testament, um, which is basically like, I know this is the end. Let me put my final words into writing to you. There's a lot of it that reads like that. There's some other Jewish testaments that read a lot like Second Timothy. Um, it doesn't really affect much of how you read it. I think it's just more cool to think. Maybe Paul really knew. This is about it. And I'm really going to sum this up, lay it down, and make it, um, make it my last testament. You know? um, some major themes, important features here. Um, is Paul urging Timothy into his calling? Paul urging Timothy into his calling. Um, let's just read that section um, here. We'll kind of go through the text as we go through this sheet. I didn't give you an outline of 2 Timothy for the reason I just talked about. I looked at a couple different ways to outline it, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know that there's much of an outline. It just seems like it's 2 Timothy. So if we put an outline to it, it would be kind of fabricated and not that helpful. So I didn't give you one. So let's just go through the text as we go through some themes. So first, Paul urging Timothy into his calling. Um, let's start in chapter uh, 1, and I'll start in verse um, 5, because I think verse 5 is good for you to know. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Um, So much good there. We read more than I think we needed for that theme, but I want you to, to feel... This is Paul's writing in a lot of Second Timothy. When you start reading it, it gets a lot into this. Like It feels like he's giving his last words. It feels like he's giving a last charge to someone he cares a lot about. And it's like, if this is the last thing you hear from me, Timothy, I want to make sure you hear this. Guard what you've been given. Fan into flame the gift that you have. Don't just sit idle. Don't let it waste away. You've got something to do because God really has done this. So go. Like This is Paul really urging on. Like I, I think Paul knows he's entering his last lap. He's passing the baton and wants to make sure, like, go. You know, don't, we've run this far. Don't drop it yet. I mean, that's a lot of the urgency of this letter. I think it's so good. So there's a lot of that. Paul urging Timothy into his calling. Um, Second, the importance of discipleship. I think which really comes on the heels of that. It's not just about Timothy. You be a great minister and you be a great Christian person. Um, But look at chapter 2, verse 2. I'll start in verse 1. He says, you then, my son, so Timothy, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So that movement is such a great discipleship, disciple-making passage. You heard me teach, you teach, so they can teach. Um, So I would just say, make this a ministry marker for you. No matter what your job is, no matter what your role is, no matter how much stage time you do or don't have, no matter if you have an instrument or if you don't, no matter if you're with kids or adults or anywhere in between, Make this something you hold on to. The things that I've heard and been taught, I'm going to pass on to other people so that they can pass on to other people. That's what we do. I want to teach people so they can teach because we got to carry this on. Um, so I think that's a great verse. Another great one just to memorize and lock away. Um, another big thing that Paul does here that's um, worth knowing, remembering, and I think are helpful um, is three metaphors for ministry work. Three metaphors for ministry work. And those three, does anybody know them or scan through your text really fast and find them? What are they? Soldier. Soldier is the first one. Athlete. athlete and farmer. Soldier, athlete, farmer. Um, so those three things, Paul is like, okay, if we're, I, you know, I just told you, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We've got this important work to do. Verse 3, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Um, so I think those three metaphors are great to just reflect on sometimes. Um, you may like really identify with some of them or really not with others, but... I think they're all super helpful. Just to, I can't really, I don't know what it's like to be a soldier, but I can picture, like, they're different. They live a different kind of life, a different kind of schedule, a different kind of haircut, different kind of uniform. Everything is different in this very purposeful kind of way to say you have a different job to do than everyone else. I think Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy. You're different. You're going to feel different. You're going to act different. You're going to talk different. You're going to go different places at different times. You may have to work at Christmas. Not everybody does. It's going to be different. Isn't it worth it? And don't you just want to please your commanding officer? Like if God is who God says he is, 
do what he asks you to do, right? And it's the best thing for you. I'm an athlete. You know, the, the thrill of winning, the thrill of crossing a finish line, that kind of stuff. It takes a lot of hard work to get there, a lot of hard work to get there. Isn't it worth it when you do it? You know, that's what Paul's urging him to. The third one is interesting. Um, similarly, with the hard work thing, um, I don't know. Some of you are probably pretty familiar with farming. Some of you are probably very unfamiliar with farming. Um, it's so, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with farming except what I have seen and heard. I've not done it. But um, it's hard, all-consuming kind of work. We were watching a show. Um, I don't remember what it was called. It was, I was with my parents in Albuquerque, and they were watching some show about people who are farmers in Scotland or something. So, you know, the, their lives are so hard. You know, they have like 100 days of summer a year, and they're trying to raise sheep in the grass. Like, it's insane the way they live. Um, but one guy said that he had milked cows every day, twice a day, for like 20-some years. Never a day off. And it wasn't even like, oh, I've never had a day off. It was just like, what do you mean a day? I have cows. You know, you wouldn't, like, why would I take a day off? You can't. Every day, twice a day, all my life. That's what you do. And so where Paul says, like, a hardworking farmer, yeah, every day, twice a day. And that's just the cows. <laughs> like, who knows what else there is? So um, that kind of hard work, lock that stuff away for our ministry work. Because I think there's a lot of talk about, like, this is so hard, and it's a hard calling, and it's exhausting, and there's truth to that. And I think Paul would be like, yeah, it is hard. You signed up for it, right? Athletes work hard, and their crown doesn't even last very long. And especially back then, it was like a crown of, of like, literal plants. So it's going to wither up and die soon. They would say it's worth it. Isn't it worth it? You know, it's like, yeah, it's hard. Gosh, it's worth it. I'm going to work hard for that every day, as long as it takes, as much as it takes. I do it for free because this is what God, if, if God really is who he says he is, wouldn't you do it for free? It's huge. So I think lock those metaphors away and grab onto like, this really matters. I really believe, drop those doctrinal anchors down deep. If this really is true, I'll do it every day till I die, no matter what. Yeah, Lydia. I know Paul's um, like writing to Timothy and yeah. he's a you gave the example of like some that work on Christmas and people that aren't in ministry might not. But do you think this also, do you think we should be making as big of a distinction about like people in vocational ministry versus not when like earlier in the beginning of two, like we're all called to make disciples and like mm-hmm. to teach people or teach others whether our job title is a ministry worker or not? Yeah. So. Yeah, good question. I, I think Paul would probably say basically the same to most people it's like if you're going to be a christian in a world that is not a christian world like where the kingdom is not fully realized yet it's going to be hard work like a soldier work i think he would say those same things to everyone who's a christian (laughs) i do think though taking this in a specific context of talking to timothy is still worth saying okay so for those of us who are called we do have some different not better or more necessarily our challenges are different He's even speaking to Timothy like, yeah, develop this culture. But Timothy, you're the one who has to develop it. you got to work hard at that. Work at it like this. So I think he is being specific towards the vocational minister type. But I think if Paul were here, he'd be like, well, yeah, everybody. Like every Christian needs to do that, needs to care about this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's – I don't think we're the only ones who do that way at all. Yeah, but I do think Paul is being specific here to him. I think it's interesting too the the um, in the farmer one, the the kind of the um, second part of it is a little different than the first two. You know, the first two are like you're gonna earn something that for like eternity. You know, 
isn't the Christian life worth it? <clears throat> the third one is the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. I think this is one of those passages. I've highlighted a few of them through the New Testament where I think Paul is kind of indicating like, you're working hard at this. You're pouring yourself into this, Timothy. If you really are working that hard, like it's okay that you, I think one, see spiritual fruit. You're going to see the benefits. Take that in. Live on that. And when you see fruit, it's amazing. Um, I think it's also probably a financial piece here. Like a farmer would live off of part of what they produce. So I think Paul is saying, like, you're going to be able to live off of some of what you produce. If you're going to do that, shouldn't you be as hardworking as a farmer? Yep. Because the old ladies' tithes are paying our salaries. Mm-hmm. So I want to honor that. But that's, it is a crazy thing that people who give to church pay my bills. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's a weird, weird thing. It's an honor. It's humbling. It's kind of uncomfortable. I think Paul's pointing to it here. You know, this is part of what we do. So you should be as hardworking as a farmer to make sure you're earning that. I think it's an important thing for us to walk away. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the next one, the importance of Scripture in ministry. The importance of Scripture in ministry. Um, certainly 2 Timothy 2.15 speaks to that. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through 17 is maybe the most significant scripture verse about scripture that there is one of them maybe this maybe hebrews 4 maybe isaiah 55 they're all really good <laughs> but this one's really good um paul says all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work um, that is one you should memorize you should know it you should know where it is you should love it it's a great verse and think about how Scripture is the thing that he says, this is useful. If you, want to, if you need to rebuke, if you need to correct, if you need to train. Scripture is good for all that stuff, um, which is great. It's such a helpful pastoral tool. It's such a helpful practical tool. Anytime you're faced with a situation, Scripture is the thing that gives you what you need. Um, so the importance of Scripture in ministry. Um, the next one is Paul's loneliness but purpose. Paul's loneliness but purpose. We won't scan through all those verses today, but you've got them on your sheet. It's an interesting theme to trace through Second Timothy, especially in light of like this may be his last thing. This is his last letter we have, but I think he's writing at least partially knowing he's getting close. And there's a lot of stuff in those. If you look at those verses, where he's just like, "This is why it's worth it. This is why I'm suffering. Yes, it's hard, but Jesus is with me." There's a like I think he's getting to the end and really. Um, there's a beauty too in this, not just in his like drive that Paul's always had, but almost like a sense of this really is true. Like everything that I've been saying, everything I've been believing, everything I lived out, you know, in Acts and all that stuff, I'm experiencing now as an older man in prison. It really is true. Everybody else left me. Jesus is with me. Mm-hmm. Remember when he wrote to the Philippians? I I know the secret of being content in every circumstance, well fed or hungry, rich poor. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in 2 Timothy, he says, this is 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Who does that sound like? God, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Or like Stephen. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Mm -hmm. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I wonder if Timothy's like, he really can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Like, that's such a cool, like, he's living it out, the theology that he taught. 
Um, you can see it at the end of his life. Um, the last one uh, is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. I put that in quotes because that word I think is really important. Um, we may have talked about it here before. We talked about it a little bit um, a few weeks ago when I was talking about holiness, humility, and health. That word health, as I think of it for kind of the vision I want to cast for this group of people here, is this word sound that's often used. Um, and here it's used talking about sound doctrine, sound teaching. So there's a, uh, if something is sound, you know, like if a boat is sound, that means it's not leaking, right? Like you can take it in the water, it's not going to fill up with water because it's sound. Um, if theology is sound, that means like it's airtight, it's complete. There's no holes in it. There's no gaps in it. You have the whole counsel of God, the whole scripture, the whole truth, the whole gospel. You can take it out into the world and not sink. It's sound. The other thing that sound means is a, it's a medical word that means like healthy, like it's good for you. It, it works. Your body can be sound when it's not sick, right? So I think that word being used for teaching, for doctrine, for theology is really important for us. I want to be sound in my theology, which means whole, complete, not lacking. But I think also means like this is good for you. This is healthy for you. You will grow up into a more mature believer when your doctrine is thorough, when your theology is right, when your belief is well informed, when your scripture knowledge is good and airtight. You'll be healthier. It'll be better for your life. Um, Christian sexuality is healthier for you. It's not just right. It's better for you. Uh, Christian morality in general, Christian, um, the Christian call not to be given to drunkenness is healthy for you and for people around you. Um, all these things are not just right. They're good. You know, they're sound. Um, and we know, we, we experience that when you walk with him. It's better. Um, but I love that that word is used so much here about doctrine, theology, teaching. So I would encourage us, never let your teaching be separate things of like, well, there's all this theology stuff, and then there's application. People really need application. It's like the application that's going to be sound is going to be sound doctrine. The, the application that's really good for you is when it's airtight theologically. When doctrine and application go hand in hand, that's sound theology. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And it's good for you better um so i would encourage you to do the hard work to get there because it's worth it does that make sense okay i love that term um so second to me again didn't give you that one titus okay the date is what all right so after acts all that stuff i'm gonna talk about crete because crete is where um paul leaves titus um, let's look real fast at Titus um, 1, verse 5, just so you can see it. I think it's helpful sometimes to see it in the text. It says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes into the elder requirements. Um, so this one's a little different, whereas in Ephesus it's like, correct all this false teaching that's risen up. Crete is like, hey, finish, finish what we started and get some leaders set up because they haven't been yet. So this is a newer context. Does that make sense? That's where Paul left Titus. So let's talk about a couple things about Crete. Um, There was a a word in the ancient world where they basically turned the word Crete into a verb. And to be a Cretan, like Cretizo, was basically to be a liar, to be a worldly person, to be a manipulator, to pursue pleasure. 
it was just like well known among the ancient world like oh those Cretans you know are like I'm, I'm really acting like a Cretan like that was kind of an expression because that's what this place was like um, so to be a Cretan was that that's where Titus is setting up his ministry where Paul's made some converts and they're trying to establish an outpost of the kingdom the second thing about Crete that's really interesting is that um, some people claim that there was like a birthplace of the god Zeus there that Zeus was from there or born there or originated there. So Zeus was a god they held on to pretty tightly. I mean, Zeus, uh, if you read or know much about like the ancient myths, um, he was kind of celebrated as like a great seducer and a great liar. Like those are the things he really did all the time. He would just kind of lie and manipulate to get what he wanted. He would seduce worldly women, gods, all kinds of things. That's just what he did. And they're like, yeah, that's right. Zeus is from here. He was a Cretan. And that was kind of part of the whole picture. So Zeus is the god they're holding to, had those actions that they were proud of that they also did, and it was just how it is here in Crete. That's the context. Isn't that interesting? Um, and uh, I said this, uh, Zeus was known for being a liar. Like that was a big, he was good at lying, good at, de- at deception, um, deceptive in kind of this way that always got his way. So that's who the god of this place was. Now, um, I want you to, I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Isn't that cool? That he's like, our God doesn't lie. He, he tells the truth. So that's the God we're proclaiming. And then to all these people where he's like set up this new kingdom, this new, like there's some new converts. We're trying to figure out how this is going to go. Timothy, I left you there to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Isn't that interesting? Now, this list is really, really similar to what's in 1 Timothy, which chapter? Three. So it's really similar. You know, this, I, Paul didn't like tailor this list just to Crete. But knowing what we know of Crete, even some of the specific language he's using, like, all right, Titus, you've got to set up leaders. This is the people we're looking for. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to take some discipleship work. It's going to take some training. It's going to take the spirit sanctifying. But you've got to look for basically the opposite of your stereotypical Cretan guy. <sighs> okay. But I love that that call to countercultural. Yeah. When he's talking about like they must be um, like um, faithful to his wife and have yeah. children who believe, he's not set. I, is he not setting up like an elder has to be married and have and be a father? But if they are married and if they are a father, then they need to be this way. Not yeah. making it a requirement of an elder to they have to be married and have to have children. Yeah. Good. Good question. Um, so people interpret that different ways. Um, there's a, let me give you kind of a few categories. Some people will say kind of that, that thing you just did where it's like, well, it says here you have to be married and have to have kids. So if you're not, you can't be an elder. Um, some people will take that to say kind of as either as an add-on to that or sometimes as a separate kind of view to that. 
if you've ever been divorced, even if it were for biblically excusable reasons, you're not a husband of one wife anymore. You're a husband of two. So you can't be. Um, I don't think either of those are, are what's meant specifically here. I think it is more like you should be the kind of person who has is faithful to a spouse, the kind of person who can raise godly, respectful kids. And I think in this time and culture, it, it would have been like the assumption I think would have been if you're a man of a decent age, you're married and you have kids, that's just what happens. Because if you didn't, then somebody would come marry you. And if you didn't have kids yet, you would find somebody to have kids. It's like, it would have been the assumption. So yeah, I think that he's less saying you must be married and more saying you should be the kind of person who is faithful to a wife or who is sexually pure, is what I think. Good questions. Um, we don't have an elder currently who is not married. Um, to my knowledge, that's not a requirement here. Um, yeah, to my knowledge, that's not a requirement here that they would say you have to be. Functionally, there we don't have any elders who are single. But I think all of them would be like, well, but that's not like, you don't have to be. We wouldn't make you. Um, we wouldn't only look there. That's how it's been. You could poke holes in that either way. I think they would say, it's not a rule. Yes, functionally, that's how it's been. That's what they would say. We do have um, at least one elder I know of. There may be more, but just one that I know of who has been divorced before um, in, on biblical grounds and has pursued all the kind of reconciliation you know, paths that you would want, is currently married. Um, but they through the vetting process they kind of ask all those questions tell us about this situation tell us when it happened tell us why what conversations have you had since like okay we feel like you are a one woman kind of man just because this has happened to you doesn't mean that you invalidate this so we do have that in our leadership good questions does that make sense to help okay um Let's see. What's next? Um, let's talk about Titus a little bit. And we don't need to turn to all these passages. I'll just kind of summarize them for you, and then you can look them up a little. So Titus doesn't show up in Acts. Um, he's not like a companion that Paul meets like Timothy was. Um, but we do see Titus mentioned in Galatians 2 that he was with Paul when Paul was doing the Jerusalem Council, which is in Acts, which chapter? 15. Good job. So um, Galatians mentioned that Titus is with Paul, at least at some point. So at some point he's traveling with him. Don't know exactly when or how that came about, but he was there. Um, in 2 Corinthians, it seems like Titus might have been the carrier of that letter um, to the Corinthians. That Paul like, met him somewhere. <coughs> it never specifically says, Titus, whom I have entrusted this letter to bring to you. But if you read all those verses, you'll kind of see, like, oh, it seems like Titus was with him at some point, and now... Paul's kind of talking about him in a way that would be like a recommendation of this guy who is here now with you, which is pretty cool to just see and imagine, like, what could that whole situation have been like? Where Titus does some of that traveling, does some of that representing Paul, they meet back up later in the 60s and do this travel, and then Paul trusts him enough to say, stay behind here in Crete, and think about what we talked about about the city of Corinth um, and how similar it was culturally to Crete. Like, I wonder if Paul has even said, like, 
you proved yourself a little bit. Like you went and delivered a hard letter to a hard group of worldly people. Titus, you can handle Crete. Let's take on this new church plan. It's interesting to piece those things together. Maybe that's part of the whole thing for Paul. Um, so here's a situation very similar to the Timothys. Paul sent Titus to Crete, <clears throat> sent Titus to Crete to correct false teaching. Um, but here again, it's, it's not so much like false teaching has arisen and more like it's a new church he needs to establish. Um, so maybe not even correct false teaching, but like establish true teaching um, and to establish good leaders. Um, so in Timothy, he was reestablishing a good leadership. Here in Titus, it seems more new. So he's establishing good leaders. Uh, a couple things to talk about um, here that we've kind of seen already. Um, the first bullet point in major themes and important features is God is different than Zeus. God is different than Zeus. So God's people must be different than culture. God is different than Zeus. God's people must be different than culture. Um, that's so much about the, so much in the letter. You'll see it. Your next big bullet point there is godly leadership is crucial, crucial for healthy churches. Godly leadership is crucial for healthy churches. Um, it is interesting. This is a brand new church in a difficult environment. And Paul's thing is, all right, is, all right Timothy, you've got to stay behind, make sure the gospel is established, and raise up some good leaders. I think because Paul knows at some point we're going to leave or at some point you're going to die or something. And if the leaders can't guard this, if there can't be people who teach well, it's not going to last very long. Yeah, John. Can you just repeat the point before again? God is different than Zeus. God's people must be different than culture. Or you could put the world if you'd rather. Okay, does that make sense? A little outline time. So first one, introduction. We've read that. Titus 1, 1 to 4 is Paul's typical kind of introduction. Paul writing to Titus, all that. Um, Titus 1, 5 to 15 I would call for your outline new leaders. So he, he, like, here's the introduction. Here's where you are, Titus. Your job is establish new leaders, and here's the requirements. So introduction, new leaders. Um, finishes out chapter 1. It should say 1, 5 to 16, because 16 is not any different. So if that bothers you, fix it. Um, Titus 2. This outline, mostly, it comes from the Bible Project. So if you watch the Bible Project video, they'll re really reinforce some of these themes. It's super helpful. Which, by the way, if you don't know about the Bible Project, or you haven't watched the videos before, you should know about them, and you should watch the videos. Mm -hmm. All the time, as much as you can, as much as you want. Anytime. The Bible Project is goldmine. Um, so Titus 2, a new household. A new household. Um, so there's a lot of like, okay, here's how older women, younger women, older men, younger men, here's how we're going to relate to one another um, in the church, here's how you're going to relate to one another in the home, um, which, you know, everybody, Paul does a lot of that in his letters. Particularly what we know about Crete is like, it would have been a mess. And so Paul's like, okay, Titus, if you're establishing a church, you got to figure out how to reestablish a new way for these people to relate to one another. Um, so that's Titus chapter 2. Um, let's look at a few verses in Titus chapter 2 that I think are really important for you to know. Titus 2, um, looking at verse 3. Um, it said, well, actually, let's start at verse 1 and read through 4. Uh, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. There's our term again. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Isn't that interesting? Because Paul said in another letter, I don't permit women to teach 
But here he's saying, teach them to teach. So again, I think the emphasis is on make sure people who are teaching are equipped to do so, not who can and can't teach. Does that make sense? Um, so not to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Again, some of this stuff you can read with a 21st century lens back into that and be like, what is he saying? I think what he's saying is help everybody, men and women, be great at the roles they're in and do it well, do it godly, do it thoroughly, do it with training, do it with theology informing it. I think that's what Paul's saying. The specifics I think we can um, give freedom for. I don't think Paul is mandating a certain occupation. I think Paul is saying be theologically deep and informed, be missional with everything you do and be excellent at it. I think that's what he's calling to. I will say, well, no, I won't say that. Here's what I will say. Um, Just like with the other thing I mentioned, he speaks specifically to men, speaks specifically to women. I think men and women need both of those lists, right? So don't just turn it into like, well, he tells women this, but not the men. It's like, well, yeah, I think I need verses three through four just as much as any of you women in the room need verse two. Like, I think that's all good stuff for us to be, you know, growing in by the power of God. Um, look at verse <clears throat> 11, 11 through 12. This is just another great verse you should know. Uh, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on in Pauline fashion. <clears throat> I think it's a great verse. I love um, just some of that language here. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Um, which is pretty cool. That's also one of the words that would be used, the appearance that would have been used for like the second appearance. So Paul is saying here, he has, he's shown up. Um, and it's not always pointing to like, and it's going to be crazy, but it's like he came. Everything God promised, he showed up, he appeared. And then we're waiting for the appearing. He's coming again. So both of those things held together. Um, Titus 3, 1 through 11 um, for your outline, I would call a new humanity. So this is just a lot more of like, okay, here's how we as people are going to function. Chapter 2 is more like men, women, how we relate in the household is all based on the gospel. Chapter 3 is like, okay, living in the world as citizens of Crete, this is what it's going to be like. And then Titus three twelve to 15, I would just call conclusion. So this is kind of Paul, you know, his typical stuff. Mentioning some people by name, telling about his plans, what he's going to do. Um, so that's how this is. Um, I want you to flip back a little bit to 2 Timothy because there's a verse I promised I was going to show you that I didn't yet. So I want to show you before we wrap up. Remember I talked about in this whole thing, like if Paul was in prison in Rome at the end of Acts, he gets out, goes back to Jerusalem, goes on maybe a fourth missionary journey, basically leaves Titus in Crete, leaves Timothy in Ephesus. He gets arrested and then is in prison in Rome and he writes 2 Timothy. Remember all that? So here's why some people say maybe he was arrested in Troas, which is kind of in that like, in between Ephesus and Macedonia, kind of stretch um, where he would have been traveling, he tells us. Um, so look at, let's just start at verse 9, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 9. Paul saying to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, Titus has left Crete and gone to Dalmatia, which is north even of Greece, north even of Macedonia. So it's kind of up in a different range. So Titus has gone somewhere else. Only Luke is with me. 
Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Um, so it's just cool to see like what Paul's asking for. You know, in his old age, towards the end of his life, he wants some stuff to read. Maybe it's personal documents. I don't know. But this is why some people are like, well, maybe he was arrested in Troas because it seems like he had some stuff there and then he left in a hurry and didn't get to take it with him. Um, so maybe that's where he was left. This doesn't affect much of anything. I just think it's interesting. It's cool to see like real situations in the text and try to piece these clues together of like, where is he and what's he doing and what's he thinking? So it's possible that while in Troas, whatever he's doing, he's arrested and then he's able to write back and say, hey, I had some stuff there I'd really like back. If I could, that'd be great. Um, so that's where we see that as kind of the wrap up to the situation here in the best worlds. Questions, thoughts on this stuff as we wrap up? Timothy and Titus. Okay. Okay. Lots of good stuff.